are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Sky Sky. Sky Sky. Yeah. All right, well, you got a lot of books spread out over there today. I do. I don't think I noticed. I just now looked up. Yeah. Yeah. It's what happens when you get a whole table to yourself. Yeah, that's what happens when Paul quotes Eratus. How many of those books do you think you're going to get to today? You got, what, like 10 books there? I do. At least? It, yes. And interestingly enough, not very many Mormon ones. Yeah. Just yeah. a couple. Yeah. Normally it's flipped. It's yeah. mostly Mormon ones. That's true. That's true. What you been up to, man? You know, reading. <laughs> <laughs> Same old. <laughs> Just reading. Rated. Working. Went to therapy. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I got some really good feedback on our episode this that came out this week. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you have I didn't had get any, any. Yeah. I don't get yeah. feedback. They thought it was. <laughs> they thought we did a good job handling a tough subject. All right. At least from the few I heard from. Yeah. 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 So. That was nice. Yeah. What have you nice. been up to? Oh, more than reading. Yeah. 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 Been, You're a busy uh, guy. Let's see here. Yeah. Life, life keeps him busy. Summers are busy. We, uh, we had a final intern meeting with our summer interns, uh, just this morning. So did that. We have three summer interns and two of them are sticking around for longer, but one of them is officially done and going to be heading back to school soon. So that was fun. I was up till 2 a.m. last night because I had to pick someone up at the Salt Lake City airport and her flight unfortunately got delayed. So my my in-laws are in town and they know this this gal. She's she's actually um, lives in Lynchburg where they are, and she wanted to just she's a teacher and wanted to just come out for a couple of weeks of summer just to hang out and see what life in Utah is like. And so she decided to overlap while my in laws are here, and they were going to go pick her up, but uh, her flight was going to land at like eleven eleven thirty, and they were just nervous about you know driving in a city that they don't know much about and going late and all that kind of stuff. So we volunteered to take care of that for them and use it as an excuse to get out on a date. So my wife and I went out and got some good food and watched Sound of Freedom, which will come in, uh, into the conversation today. <laughs> they can't see my face. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about yeah. the Sound of Freedom. Um, oh, boy. Which, you know, if you're not aware, that's a, a movie that's come out recently that is being deemed a Christian movie by many outlets and uh, many people don't know, of course, some of the things that are behind that. So we'll, we'll talk about that movie a little bit, but it was helpful to watch the movie, you know, just to be aware culturally of what's going on here. Cause uh, that's a, that's a big, big deal here in Utah, especially in Utah County. I think Angel Studios headquarters are in downtown Provo, aren't they? I mean, I know like I walk in downtown Provo and there's a, there's a, uh, building there that has their logo and everything on it. I don't know if that's where they headquarter everything, but yeah, I'm not sure. That's the studio that produced the movie and also produces The Chosen and is expanding pretty rapidly, producing lots of other movies and kids shows and all sorts of stuff. So 
So we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, in any case, the uh, the gal's flight got delayed that we were picking up. So we ended up not picking her up till like one in the morning, which means we got home at like two in the morning. So if uh, if I get nonsensical here for any reason, it's because, well, yeah, <laughs> that. So there's that. We'll see what happens. But yeah, so that's 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 my life. That's that's about all I got. Man, I don't even have that. You just have books. I just have books. Doing books. I know. Like I could talk about a book, but <laughs> what's the most insightful thing you've read in the last week? In the last week, um, most insightful thing I've read in the last week. I've I've really enjoyed this uh, book, "The Hope of Israel" by Brandon Crow. Yeah, um, just trying to get into the um, better. More familiar with the Acts of the Apostles, uh huh. Um, so I'd I'd say that that book has been great. Yeah, sweet, <laughs> sweet, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, since you've been reading books to help talk about what we're talking about today, maybe we should just get on Let's into hit it. it. So Let's hit uh, it hard, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be looking at the LDS curriculum for Acts 16 to 21, which the dates on that, which are the dates that the wards will be covering this in meeting houses across the world is July 24th to the 30th. And so we're looking at Acts 16 to 21. And really there is a honing on, honing in on a very particular subject here, which has been the case in some of the more recent ones where they've kind of picked one theme and there's less of a of divided thought and more of just a emphasis on a particular idea. And that's what they're doing in this, this uh, section of scripture as well. So the subtitle for the lesson is, The Lord Has Called Us to Preach the Gospel. The Lord has called us to preach the gospel. Now, again, we've hit on this stuff throughout, but uh, who is the Lord? Yeah. And uh, what does it mean to preach? Mm-hmm. And what is the gospel? Yeah. And, and of course, uh, I, I, I mentioned the preaching point because it does not seem as if LDS people are really into preaching no. and proclaiming distinctive truths um, that they hold dear and believe other people should conform their lives to as much anymore as it is, uh, well, in the lesson itself, it gets more into the the sharing sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, but, again, the Lord, well, different Lord, and the gospel well, different gospel, and uh, they use this word, the gospel, throughout, sharing the gospel and things like that. It's just important to know that they have a very different meaning of mm-hmm. what the gospel is and what we do. Um, what's their gospel? Uh, well, today you'll hear it as men can become better, you yeah. know. Uh, it's humanity improved. Uh, what it means classically is like every god before man has the potential to become gods mm-hmm. and be the equivalent that god the gods are for this world and other worlds like it two worlds of our own organizing 
um, and for our children that we will literally have yeah. with our wife or wives, depending yep. on which era of Mormonism. Yep. And that progression occurs by bending your life to the law. Yes. And the law being this higher power standard that binds all gods and all yeah. it's the closest people. thing to a god yeah really if is. you think about it that way yeah um and yeah it's through knowledge through obedience through ritual yeah okay how would you explain the evangelical christian gospel the gospel is a message about what christ has done right it's it's what what uh you know the decree of god the father as enacted by god the son and um what actualized in the church, in the members of the church, by the God the Spirit. It's a triune work, triune God apart from creation, um, who is the ultimate standard, but is ultimately personal as well. There is no higher standard he answers to. And just as there was nothing apart from him before creation, and creation adds nothing to him. Yep. Boom. Get your basics that, right. How's that? Yeah. And, of course, the gospel is the good news of what Christ accomplished for his people, yeah. which is a reconciling of fallen man, man fallen and ruined and sent, dead and sent, children of wrath, yep. and reconciling them on his merits based on grace, gift of God, A to Z. It is the gift of God, not of us in any way. Um to be in him and therefore reconciled to the Father. Yep. Yeah, by being united to him in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Ascension. All all of it. Yep. yep. Okay. Boom. All right. There's basics. That's that's a fundamental difference there. Yeah. Uh, so we're not going to touch too much. Uh, I will, if you want to make any comments on this section, uh, hand it over to you. But on the first section, we've got Acts 16 to 21. They say they're covering generally. And the subtitle there is, As members of the Savior's church, we testify of him and share his gospel. So that's why it's important what we just covered about the distinctions mm-hmm. between gospels there. But they kind of just say one, one prominent message in this section of Scripture is the importance of the Holy Ghost and sharing the gospel uh, class members could read about how the Holy Ghost helped Paul and Silas. Why do we need the Holy Ghost when we share the gospel? Perhaps class members could share experiences when the Holy Ghost guided their efforts to share the gospel. How can Paul's experiences help class members have courage when they are prompted to share their testimonies? That's interesting how the yeah. only the only bit that you get on what the gospel could be that they're supposed to be sharing is related to their personal testimony. Yep. Uh, what truths did Paul teach and understand that gave him confidence in his message? Why do we hesitate to share the gospel, and how does the Savior help us? And they're supposed to just kind of have discussion around this. It's really one of those sections that they don't say anything. No. Really, it's more so get the discussion going within the, the class. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any comments on that section? Not worth There's sharing. not much no, there. No. Yeah. So um, most of the bulk of the doctrine that you get, which is funny because this is the teach the doctrine section, and they didn't really teach much doctrine not in there. Um, maybe some of like what how does what is the role of the Holy Ghost in sharing the gospel? Sure. Um, would be some doctrinal points that they would discuss within the class. But 
Uh, aside from that, they're not making any objective claims in the material itself. It's just facilitating discussion. But you do get some claims being made in the next section that they want to cover, which is covering Acts 17, 16 to 34. And uh, I think it's probably worthwhile to read that whole section yes. just so that we have the context of what's what's going on here. So this is primarily the uh, story of Paul in Athens. I'm going to actually start all the way up in verse 16. Yeah, that's where they start. And then we'll read down to verse 34. So just hang with us. This is uh, this is narrative, so it shouldn't be too difficult to listen to. And, uh, and then we'll get into some of the discussion on what they're making as their claims from this section in the LDS curriculum. So this is what the Word of God says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath in everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, or and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote. As even some of your own poets have said, quote, For we are indeed his offspring, end quote. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagine, uh, imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, so that's what you got going on there in the text. And then the subtitle, the thing that they want to focus on more than anything else in this particular passage is and you could guess it if uh, you know how um, 
the LDS faith likes to likes to uh, direct their their people's attention. Yep. But uh, it's we are the offspring of God. So out of this whole section that I just read, this, that's what they want to hone in on is that one particular line that comes in verse twenty eight in which Paul is quoting a pagan poet, they want to say, we are the offspring of God. Okay, and uh, and then it says, on Mars Hill, Paul taught about the Heavenly Father to a group of people who knew little about God's true nature. And he says to explore these ideas, write the things on the board, get them thinking about it, basically. And as you examine these verses together, discuss, consider discussing the truth taught in verse 29. We are the offspring of God. You could write on the board, because we are children of God, and if we did not know we are children of God, invite class members to suggest ways to complete these sentences. For example, what does the fact that we are children of God teach us about ourselves and about the way we should treat each other? How would our lives be different if we did not know about our true relationship with God? What does the statement by Dallin H. Oaks and additional resources add to this discussion? And I'm going to go ahead. I know this is lengthy. Stick with me. I'm going to go and read that whole statement from Dallin Oaks. It's it's, uh, under, we are all children of God, additional resources. Be careful, Dallin Oaks says, how you characterize yourself. Don't characterize or define yourself by some temporal or temporary quality. The only single quality that should characterize us is that we are a son or daughter of God. That fact transcends all of the characteristics, including race, occupation, physical character, physical characteristics, honors, or even religious affiliation. We have our agency, and we can choose any characteristic to define us. But we need to know that when we choose to define ourselves or to present ourselves by some characteristic that is temporary or trivial in eternal terms, we de-emphasize what is most important to us and we overemphasize what is relatively unimportant. This can lead us down the wrong path and hinder our eternal progress. So this lesson fundamentally is focusing on the LDS distinctive teaching that we are all children of God. This is where it ties into the movie, The Sound of Freedom. For those who have seen The Sound of Freedom, uh, just just know that that is produced by uh, LDS people, and it is um, embedded with an LDS way of thinking. The fundamental line in the whole movie, the, the kind of crux, the climax moment, is uh, is when the main character is portrayed answering a question of why are you doing all of this, and he very profoundly in the setting of the movie says, "God's children are not for sale," and that's that becomes kind of the main theme of the whole movie. And of course, the movie, if you've not seen it, is about uh, attempts to rescue children out of the sex trafficking industry. And uh, there's a lot of things that I would say are good about the movie, but of course we know that there's also uh, a very uh, important, subtle message that's being sent and a very intentional marketing purpose that's being sought to be accomplished by the LDS faith and these different productions. But uh, yeah, the, the idea that we're all God's children um, is a LDS idea. What what would you comment on that particular LDS distinctive there, Skylar? Well, it's when they say children, they literally mean it. And just as the process of having children as humans, that's not different with gods other than the 
I guess the quantity or the 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 level of glory the bodies are involved are. So, yeah, that's kind of different. <laughs> uh, and, of course, even in this manual, right, they, they want to frame the whole thing as this fundamental truth about all human beings, regardless of anything else, any other characteristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, never bringing up passages, never dealing with Genesis 2 in context, what the image of God is, or Genesis 1 and 2, never dealing with the time we're called children of wrath, never dealing with passages like in John 1, where, you know, in Christ, we have the privilege of becoming children yeah. of God, showing that we're not already. Um, so it's, it, they are, when they mean, when they say children, they mean literal. Yeah. So, of course, the offspring of God verse becomes the paradigm by which they see everything else. Yeah. And and to show that that's not just me saying that, here's David Ridges. And by the way, you can get a copy of David Ridges at Costco, I saw. Oh. Yeah, so they're wow. selling it, not just a Deseret book, but at Costco. Yeah. Um, this is David Ridges' comment on these verses. Does 28 um, and 29 below contain simple, clear doctrine, namely that we are the offspring of God? Not a metaphor at all. In most verses in Scripture, we are referred to as creations of God, which of course we are, but the word offspring is even more specific. It means that we were born as spirit sons and daughters of our heavenly parents. Mm -hmm. So there's a mother, Christians, there's a mother. They have goddesses too. It's not just gods. When they speak, this is, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, might as well mention it now. You start with Mormon essentials. There's no reason to only emphasize three. I am absolutely convinced of that. <laughs> because they all have wives. Most of them have more than one, including Oaks and Nelson, by the way. And they, those are equal in status. So they'll just say heavenly parents. See Proclamation of the Family, paragraph two. We've covered Proclamation of the Family, where it says that uh, as if it's evidence for this point that... Uh, this it's an eternal truth. Once again, by eternal, they don't they don't they don't mean the same thing either. Eternal is not a unique attribute of the unique God. No, it's something eternally true in cycles of existence, eternal rounds, even because they have a cyclical view of time ultimately. And it says all human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. By that, they mean literal. They mean. <laughs> The image is God has two eyes, two ears, two hands, white skin. Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature Mm -hmm. and destiny. Right there. Right there. So, um, continuing on with ridges. It means that we are not creations in the sense that trees, mountains, cows, horses, sheep, birds, etc. are. Rather, we are literally children of God, and thus, through righteousness, can become like him and become gods. Mm-hmm. See D&C 132, 19 and 20. D&C 132 being the polygamy uh, section that is still in. To have this correct doctrine right in the Bible can be helpful to us as we teach our non-member friends who they really are. Yeah. And I think Ballard has uh, taken this to heart. And anybody that's heard Ballard's testimony knows it's based on a Book of Mormon verse as well. One more quotation from Ridges. 
on the next verse where we ought not to think uh, that God, the Godhead is like in a gold, silver stone, all that. He says, since we are God's literal children and we are not made of gold, silver, or stone, carved or sculpted by some artist, then it follows that the Godhead is composed of real people like us, not of statues made by man. Yeah. So I think that gives an insight into this. Um, and, of course, they in the seminary manual, they even say this is the new doctrine, right? This is Paul teaching the philosophers the true nature of God. And notice the singular, too, in the seminary manual. I just want to I, I put in an S, gods, and testify of their divine relationship, which is procreative, literally procreative, to him. This lesson can help you feel the importance of your identity as a child of God. And I also want to say gods, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a heavenly mother, that's two people, two separate beings and persons. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's not one. Yeah. Uh, like even, even if they're like, no, we're henotheistic. I saw a Roman Catholic apologist fall for this recently. And I uh, just want to, it's not henotheism. There's more than one. They don't just emphasize one. Mm-hmm. They've, I mean, even in the headings, right? It could be the Lord. It can be heavenly father. It can be the spirit. It can be the Holy ghost. These are all different things. They they keep they they still don't want to get rid of this distinctive, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, they will say, "Hey, you should sing this song, hymn number three hundred one, to start this lesson, called I Am a Child of God.'" Yep. I. It's funny. The second I heard the music, you click on it, right? You hear the music. I, the words came back. Yeah. I mean, this is like the doxology. What the doxology is to evangelicals. Mm-hmm. This is what it is for LDS, and I don't know if we want to spend time reading it or if I can just put it in the show notes. Yeah. So, so basically, this is sung routinely. Yes. Uh, Primary. Uh, how, on how routinely? I mean, is it like a weekly thing they would sing? Monthly? I don't need a piano. Yeah. I am a child of God, and He has sent me here. I yeah. mean, it, it's it, like the doxology, yeah. right? Where yeah. I mean, it would be nice to have a nice band and whatever, but you don't, you don't yeah. even need it. Christians know the tune, mm-hmm. LDS know the tune, and if anybody's been in the LDS church for any amount of time, even if as a little kid, they will know that tune and at least know the first verse. Yeah, and it it teaches this yeah. stuff. And, do you and, have the, Do you have the lyrics for that? Um, here, um, I've, I think I I've got them here. Let me pull it up. I've lost it amongst everything. I've got it right here. Okay, I am a child of God. Uh, and he has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way, teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. I am a child of God. He has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. One is with music, one is without music. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. And it goes on, I am a child of God, and so my needs are great. Help me to understand his words before it grows too late. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. I am a child of God. 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 Right. So that's it. Now, they they cite this talk by 70, Donald Hallstrom, uh, his comment on this. Once again, they, they are to sing this hymn. And then the question in the manual is, what words or phrases from this hymn do you find to be significant and why? And this is supposed to be about Acts 17. And what do they do? They take, the, ironically, the pagan quotation, and that becomes the filter by which you read everything else. Mm-hmm. And here he says, this beloved hymn is one of the most often sung in this church. 
But the critical question is, do we really know it? Do we know it in our mind and in our heart and in our soul? Notice, the Shema, you know, forget that. Do you know this hymn in your might? Sorry, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. Is our heavenly parentage our first and most profound identity? And then they reemphasize the questions. They actually put them out, and they're supposed to, you know, go through them. And um, just some listeners might think, well, how do they do, deal with all the idolatry emphasis here? Um, they say idolatry is simply worshiping things other than God. And and once again, that's that's it. That's all they do. I mean, it's like the fundamental sin of the Bible, and that's how they define it. They don't go into anything else. They, in fact, they don't even <laughs> notice. They don't land on the temples made with hands point. They don't land on the point where it literally says God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything. Wait, doesn't he need his priesthood and his body? And his, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> So, I, I mean, it's they, this is. I, I guess you know we've we're talking about creed of Christianity, right? This phrase, "offspring of God," interpreted the way they do, yeah, it's as creedal as anything in the history of Mormonism, mm. and it is something that unites uh, Smith at least beginning in the Nauvoo period to Nelson today. Yeah. It is something that has not changed, and it's hard to imagine Mormonism with it changing. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that this becomes the emphasis. They spend two days on it. Let me just read one more quote, and then I'd, I've got some John Woodsell if we want more. Mm-hmm. But M. Russell Ballard, Children of Heavenly Father, says this, The foundational fact of heavenly parentage is not just my truth or your truth. It is eternal truth. It is written in big, bold, capital letters. Understanding this truth, really understanding it and embracing it, is life-changing. It gives you an extraordinary identity that no one can ever take away from you. No one can take away from you. Good God? But more than that, It should give you an enormous feeling of value and sense of your infinite worth. And he means that. Infinite worth. This is secular humanism divinized, right? Mm -hmm. Finally, it provides you a divine, noble, and worthy purpose in life. And the questions after that for the manual are, What differences can it make in your life and in the decisions you make to know that you are literally the offspring of God? What experiences have you had that have helped you better understand your divine identity as a child of God? So, pretty key. Yeah. Yeah. You you pick up on it all of the time when you're interacting with LDS thought and culture. And uh, that's why... When we, as credo Christians, see a movie like The Sound of Freedom, and we see the pinnacle moment of the whole movie is him saying, God's children are not for sale. And that's the most emotional moment in the movie and everything else. What we see is an entire worldview that's being portrayed and argued for through this uh, movie format. 
And, uh, and so we, we would see these connections that other people may not, may not see, but they also use this as a, as I think the basis of kind of their modern universalism, Yep, you know, God loves all of his children. And, and that's why an LDS person will recoil at the thought of hell because Mm -hmm. how could God send any of his children to hell is, is kind of their immediate go-to when you start to talk about judgment and, and things of that nature. So you have to see, I guess, if you're a credo Christian, how this connects into all of their theology and becomes really one of the fundamental bedrock points within their worldview is this fact that we are God's children. Right. And when we're out on the streets talking to people and, and we start talking about some of the distinctives between us and them, th- we'll hear this phrase all the time. Well, we're all, we're all children of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course we would differ and disagree with Absolutely. that claim that we are all God's children because the Bible simply doesn't say it. No. And so we would look at this text that we're dealing with here and would obviously deal with it in a different way of interpreting uh, than what you see happening in how the LDS people deal with this. And I'll just say at the outset, this is one of those passages of Scripture, again, that so much ink has been spilled on trying to decipher and understand how and why Paul is saying this particular truth what what in what context is he using it and talking to all these people at the Areopagus and uh, again it's an example of the the LDS faith making one of the more obscure difficult to interpret less plain texts in scripture fundamental to their doctrine I mean I don't know if there's any place where they're going to try to ground this teaching that we are all children of God more than this particular text. This is it. And this particular text is one of the most difficult ones to deal with in terms of trying to figure out why is Paul using this, this uh, quote and what does he mean by it? And the reason is because, well, one, you always have to interpret things in their context. So what is Paul trying to say to the people at the Areopagus? Uh, who is he quoting from? And what is the person who he's quoting from? trying to say by this particular phrase, and how does that play into the way that Paul is using this phrase, the phrase being, for we indeed are his offspring, or we are indeed his offspring. But then the other thing you have to grapple with is the fact that you know we always want to be careful to, to uh, interpret narrative and uh, Luke's even explanation of the expansion of the church by the didactic. So there are didactic teachings, and there is some some elements of this that are didactic. So I, I wouldn't deny that. But uh, Paul is very explicit and clear in places like Galatians that there is ultimately one true offspring, even of Israel. There's one true uh, offspring of, of God, and that is the Son of God, Jesus himself. And, uh, and we only become children of God by way of adoption in him. He is the one and only true Son of God. And he makes that abundantly clear and evident in Galatians. And so we want to take those places where Paul is teaching doctrine to the church to understand the right doctrine. And we do come to texts like this and interpret Scripture in light of Scripture that is clear. Um, Now, we want to deal with this text on its own terms as well, so that's not an excuse to not do any work in this particular text. But when you come to texts that are a little less clear 
you, you've got to use what you know from what Paul, who, by the way, is the one speaking at the Areopagus here, has written with more clarity in other places to try to understand what he means, even by what he's saying in this passage. So I don't know. Do you want to make any comments on like I, I, some of the even details in this text? It, I mean, just to reiterate um, some of what you said, the same Paul that's speaking here wrote several letters we still have in which he teaches the creator-creation distinction. He teaches who Jesus is in his divinity and his humanity. Uh, he affirms the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God, mm-hmm. and in fact calls, right, uses terms like children of wrath, and then t- speaks of adoption of all people? No, some people <laughs> yeah. um, into Christ, right, by the Spirit. So, um you know, whatever this means, it doesn't mean how they're interpreting it. And what's interesting is that even if you study the Stoics and the Epicureans, right, um, there are going to be points of agreement that if we have time, we'll get to. With Mormon theology... You're you're bringing up the Stoics and the Epicureans because... Those are the two identified groups in Athens. That he's quoting from. Right, well, and... And talking to Speaking to, right. Yeah. And, and how they wouldn't understand, um, as far as we know, they wouldn't understand the Greek gods as literally begetting spirit offspring of yeah. everybody either. Yeah. And that's that's the point to point out, is that Mormons have taken maybe a, a, a point of paganism, but they even take it to an extreme that makes them, you know, non-recognizable to, to Zeno or anyone else. Yeah. So remember, the meaning of a text is what the author is seeking to convey to the audience. And so even if we're trying to understand uh, what Paul is trying to convey to these particular people at the Areopagus, what we have to do to boil down what the meaning is, is understand who the people are that he's talking to and what then he is trying to say to them. Why is he using these texts that come from their own philosophers to try to make a bigger point Uh, that ultimately calls them to repentance and to trust in Christ, where he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's preaching Jesus to these people, and he's using some concepts that they could understand in order to do that, but he is not linking up with their particular interpretation of the world. No He's way. not affirming their worldview. No. He's actually using some greater concepts to clarify distinctions within the true worldview that these people ought to hold. And uh, people often will refer to this uh, passage in the Bible as Paul being like really culturally relevant and all this stuff. And, you know, they'll kind of use it to portray Paul as like the, the uh, hipster guy hanging out, you know, in, in the, in the circles of the world and, and kind of taking on the, the form of the world and things like that. And uh, if you go back and read what Paul is saying here, he is speaking a truth about God that is a rebuke uh, to the worldviews that all of these people at the Areopagus would have held to. And so, you know, he, he's preaching hard truth. He is not warming up to the world here. He is declaring 
the excellencies of the one and only true God who's the creator of everything, who is the sovereign sustainer of all life, who doesn't live in temples that are made by human hands, who can't be served by human hands as though he needed anything. He can't be manipulated. He can't be changed. He can't be convinced. He is the source of all life and breath and everything. And uh, th- this is the God that uh, that Paul is preaching to these people, which wouldn't have been their concept of God at all or of the Most High Being. But then he does pull, it seems, into some of their way of thinking to try to relate um, to their their thoughts and show them uh, the 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 in a way, I guess, the truth within that way of thought. You know that even the Stoics, it seems like he's saying recognize that God is the source of all life. Even the Stoics recognize that uh, we, we are dependent upon some higher being. Well, I'm telling you who that higher being is. He's the one and only true God who created you, who came into the world, died for sins, who resurrected from the dead, and whom you must now repent and trust in. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. And it's it's interpreted within the biblical worldview yep. in which Jesus' res- resurrection means exactly what he's preaching. Yeah. So he's not meeting them halfway. It doesn't mean there's no ability to work with people where they're at. That's not what I'm saying. But ultimately, Christianity is an entire worldview. It's yeah. not just a, uh, well, an Epicurean worldview or a Stoic worldview within which they can interpret freely the fact of the resurrection. Yeah. In other words, you know, for the Stoics who have this logos, impersonal logos principle at the core of their worldview, you know, they could just say, oh, interesting. You know, it's uh, the ultimate uh, myth of reason, right? The Epicureans, in which it's just matter in motion and atoms falling, they would say, oh, weird swerve. You know, Ripley's believe it or not, right? Instead, Paul is convicting them in a covenantal way based on the Old Testament, even the Torah, yeah. in saying you owe your allegiance to the one God whom you pretend to know, and even out of anxiety for that, you build this altar to an unknown God, Yeah, and yet you do know him. Yeah, You're just in rebellion against him. And by raising Jesus from the dead... Right, you're to repent. Yeah, that's right, and believe in Him. That's right. Th- this isn't just an abstract idea or a, a grand uh, center of reasoning. Right. This is a person who came right. into the world, who lived, who died, and who was resurrected from the dead, and He's the one that you have to reckon with—a real historic person who's done real historic things that you must answer to. Right, and this point about God not needing anything. I mean, this really, I mean, can any LDS from any perspective affirm that? Right. Does he not need his wife or wives? Does he not? I mean, the way they talk about themselves and their testimonies, you really get the sense that God needs you. Yeah. <laughs> but but no, creedal Christianity, we, we don't, we see God. We look at the first verse of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God, even before creation, mm-hmm. as eternally blessed and not needing anything. He didn't create out of need, right? So we we say, you know, God plus creation is not more sufficient, more glorious, more blessed than God minus the creation. Right. And when that 
with that insight into who God is, a real God is, as transcendent and standard, but also absolutely personal. Yeah. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. What do you what are you gonna do to get on his side? I mean, he's looking at these idols, right? That people serve for the seasons or for this or for luck or for whatever. And Something they can do, whether it's a ritual or a tithe or some sort of sacrifice or some sort of allegiance to get them on your side. No, no, no. This God, he doesn't need you. Yep. He doesn't need creation. Anything created. Yep. So what what are you even able to do to manipulate yeah. a God that doesn't need you? Yep. And so that's that God <laughs> is who Paul is preaching. That's right. And in the sense uh, of his quoting of of uh, Eratus, more than likely, yeah. right? Uh, for we indeed are his offspring. More than likely, the idea that he's getting at is this idea of he's the creator and we are the creation. Yeah, um, we come from him, and thus we are entirely dependent upon him who is a sovereign God. So Paul is using this quotation from this person to try to communicate the grandness of who God is and the dependence of the creation on the creator. So this is a quote that he's using within uh, the Stoic way of thinking to try to emphasize that creator-creation distinction, Mm -hmm. and yet the fact that we are dependent upon him and therefore must repent and trust in him as our only hope for ultimate meaning and purpose in life. Right, the same, in him we live and move and have our being. Yeah. That's the same God Paul is preaching in in quoting the poet, we are his offspring. Yeah. Who's the his? Can, Can an LDS sincerely, truthfully, clear-headedly, reasonably say that in Heavenly Father, if they're going to pick one of the three gods and not emphasize the women, okay, Heavenly Father, can they honestly say, in Him, they live and move and have their being, their existence? Mm-hmm. No. With, with, their, our, with their understanding of agency. Their understanding of agency, their yeah. understanding of intelligence being eternally existent, as eternal yep. as anything else, um, which is why it's not that Jesus is created. Jesus isn't created, but neither are you. In yeah. other words, we all have eternally existing intelligences. There right. is no beginning yep. to Mormonism. Yep. We all just exist. There is no beginning to exist in Mormonism for anything. Yep. And so your intelligence is as eternal as the one heavenly father is. Mm-hmm. The difference is how far he has progressed in knowledge and understanding according to the Holy Spirit or the light of Christ or this, imp- like once again, almost this impersonal logos principle, yeah. like the Stoics. Yep. Even though, by the way, they have uh, more of an epistemology like the Epicureans, if we have time for that. But the point is, do they, can they honestly say that? That in heavenly father, they live and move and have their existence. No. <laughs> it, it, maybe they can say according to the same standard that he does that he understands better but that's the same him folks and that's this is 
It's a treatment, their treatment of the text we've seen all year. There's not even an anxiety to try to defend this phrase as representative of this entire sermon, let alone of the entire chapter, let alone of the entire book of Acts, let alone the entire Pauline corpus, let alone the entire New Testament corpus, let alone the entire biblical corpus. This, what they're doing is they found a phrase and are interpreting it in a certain way to seemingly justify, biblically, an entire worldview that in many ways is even more foreign than Stoicism and Epicureanism to the biblical worldview. Yeah. Some ways it's very similar, which I'll get to, but not on this. Yep. So let's try to get inside of Paul's head to see from other places maybe some of the ideas that he is getting at here. And uh, this is a good opportunity to bring up the Imago Dei yes. or the image of God. And so I'm actually going to be preaching this passage this coming Sunday, uh, excited about it. But just here from Colossians 1, this is the Apostle Paul writing of Jesus, who, by the way, uh, delivered. So he, he says right before this section, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom, in the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is a beautiful passage of scripture. Uh, many people believe that this was a hymn of the early church. It could have predated Paul, or it could be that Paul literally wrote a hymn right here in the text that the church should sing together. But you see some of these ideas in the text that I think are the sorts of things that Paul is trying to articulate in Athens about who this God is. This is a God who uh, is the creator of all things in heaven and earth, and he is the God in whom all things are dependent. And uh, without him, there is nothing made that is made. And he's relating that, that God is God the Son. Jesus is that God. The Father is that God. The, the Holy Spirit is that God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, um, is this God on which all creation depends. And so that's some of the idea that's that's coming in here. But you do get there uh, in verse 15 this phrase, he is the image of the invisible God. Well, then you have Paul saying things like, we are all this God's offspring. So how does this relate to what we would consider to be the doctrine of the Imago Dei? Um, I don't know if you want to fill that in before I, I make some more comments on it. Yeah, just interrupt me if I'm heading in a different direction. Yeah. But, but one key thing to see in the text is that this God, the God, Lord of heaven and earth, right? He made from one man, and who's that one man? Adam, right? Every nation of mankind to live. That's right. And he's using this as part of his prosecution, so to speak, this covenantal lawsuit against all people that 
in light of the resurrection and the ascension, they owe their worship to this one God as in Jesus, right? Jesus is the one God. Now, Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And this is something, there's a lot of ink spilled on exactly what this is. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a problem at times with under definition, like with Mormonism and keep it vague and mm-hmm. therefore you can make it literal. Yep. Overly, overly literal. But there's also um, sometimes the problem of over definition, sometimes making it so precise that you're not taking into account the way in which Jesus is the unique image and yeah. things like that. So I, I've seen that quite a bit, but this is, this is my understanding and yeah. I, I'd love to see how you build on this is that, in especially in the history of the church, there's been two kind of ways, and, and there, there are thinkers who will speak to both at different times. So it's not to say these are two distinct camps. Mm-hmm. But there's kind of the substantial view of the image and likeness of God and this functional view. One is more about a, an attribute we possess, uh, whether that's reason or a spiritual nature, uh, even will. Um Whereas the functional is something um, people do or a status they have by virtue of their unique creation. And uh, so, for example, dominion in, in Genesis one twenty six. This poem uh, in one twenty seven, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Shows that... If you if you look at if you match the subjects God he he the verbs created 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 the objects man him them which is interesting and the quality um, shows that there is some expression of the image that uh, Genesis one sees also in the marriage between man and woman um, so there's some an individual component all human beings but there's also some expression that is emphasized in that poem with male and female. Remember, this one God, singular, created, um, is not male, female. He created male and female. Now, this the word idol um, and shadow, it, This especially when we see how the Greek Septuagint, this Greek ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew, what's so interesting about the word image is that they they translate it as the word for idol. It's the very thing Israel is forbidden to make. Yeah, and there's an entire logic of idolatry that's wrapped up in this. Yep. Also, by the way, the likeness is what we also need to emphasize with LDS, in the sense that likeness means it's something like, but not exactly like a shadow. Yeah, it's almost like a, a copyright infringement. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. could be like an analogy that you could use. God, God created His image. Right. In man. Exactly. And so for man to try to create an Images. image of God is to commit copyright infringement. Idolatry. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, you see this in Genesis 2. See, if if the Mormon worldview is really what's behind the Bible, why do you have the creation of man described in the way it is? Mm-hmm. And, and once again, not just in Genesis 2, in Isaiah. How about Paul, Romans 9? Does the Paul say, I mean, sorry, does the pot say to the, the potter, right? The clay say to the one who made it, right? The, the analogy for them in terms of the, the origin of this image and likeness is a created status by the unique God of human beings. And the logic of idolatry is seeing, is instead of recognizing that status in imaging God to the world, 
Yeah. Right. In, in his communicable attributes to the world, we instead create images of him, including human beings, by the way, in Romans one, I hope LDS see that Paul, even post incarnation brings up the idolatry point in the form of an image of God in the form of a human being, which is interesting of human beings. So if you think of an icon on a computer, right, it's not the God itself. It's how you access the God. And, and it's so interesting that in the, I guess, in Torah logic, if I may say, use that term, there's already right embedded in this concept, love of God and love of neighbor as the primary commandments. Because you, you first love the God who made you, who gives you this objective status— but then you image him to whom? To, to creation, yes, but to other human beings. Love of God, love of neighbor, right here. You have it right here. And so what's, what's so interesting about this, though, is that if you look at Genesis 1, um, and this is where I wish more people that uh, deal with this subject or, or get you know off on rabbit trails um, in terms of the comparative work between Genesis and other so-called creation myths um, would would see that often mythology affirms the status quo. It affirms a culture where it's at, right? Or the ruling elite. But here, think of how radical this is. And, and, and a lot of scholars have noticed this. It just doesn't get emphasized enough. Is that there in the ancient Near East, you have this idea of, of a human being made in the image and likeness of God. But it's never everybody. It's the king or the pharaoh, right? right? Um, the king might be called the selim of the de- deity um, or like even his spirit as being in the likeness of a deity. Yeah. What's so interesting is that this does have a royal connotation, which we even see in Genesis 1 when it comes to dominion and all that. Mm-hmm. But here's the difference, right? The one who assumes kingship at the end of the creation story, really an assigned, almost like prime minister status, is hum- the human, yeah, the humans. And where um, instead of it being just a status for the pharaoh, it's of ordinary man. Mm-hmm. Everybody, every person is made in the image and likeness of God. We have, and I like the way John Oswald puts this. Um, maybe it's, there's a better way to put it, but I, it makes the point, right? The Bible has become its own worst enemy, we take this for granted. Universalism succeeds, including this Mormon stuff, this offspring of God stuff, but even the liberal form, right? The universal fatherhood of God, which yeah. they even make more metaphor than LDS do, and the universal brotherhood of man that Machen is responding to in Christianity and liberalism. What are they taking advantage of? They're taking advantage of the success of this understanding of the dignity of man that is universal. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're taking dignity in, in making it equivalent to salvation yeah. as opposed to the f- fall and uh, the clear recognition in the New Testament of the natural state being condemnation, children of wrath, and then in Christ becoming children of God. Yeah. So I don't know if, you, <laughs> if I did an all right job there. Yeah, that's but really good. There's one point I, I want to make with Genesis 2, and I'll try to make this really quickly, that, that we can see really quickly how... how deep this goes, actually, because especially to an ancient Near Eastern listener to Genesis 2, they're going to recognize even some of the terms of Genesis 2. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to lay this out in detail, but this is so interesting. Even the giving of li- the breathing of life, 
That term is used both in Babylon and in Egypt of priests making statues of their gods and activating them. Yeah. Like the, the, the image is, no, you don't make images of God. God has already made images, yeah. and it's in the form of human beings. And this also goes in, ties to Christian ethics in the sense of if you destroyed the statue of a god in ancient Near East, especially if they're a really key one, it was seen as death penalty worthy. Why? Because you're you're threatening you're threatening the stability, the order of society itself. Yeah. The Israelite uh, does not reject that reasoning, but it applies it not to statues made of false gods, mm-hmm. but of human beings, even children, even the elderly. They don't do just some cost-benefit utilitarian John Stuart Mill, you know, yeah. Bentham, uh, who, who can uh, you know, give the most to our GDP. No, 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 no. These images, to, to murder even the children, the unborn, and, and early Christians were always opposed to abortion. There was abortion in the ancient world. I don't know why we think this was something that started in the 1900s. There's abortion in the ancient world. We even have a description of some of the procedures. Yeah. They always opposed it because they saw that the life of the human began at conception, which yeah. is, by the way, why even early Christians, right, they saw a distinction between the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. It's something we often overlook. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. That was really good. Um, I, I just, yeah, I've got, just listening to you, ideas firing oh, all over the place of, of different ways that we could branch off and continue to to fill this sort of stuff in. But... But uh, even some of the things that you were mentioning of the ancient Near East and the idea of, of these uh, divinators and uh, priests of false gods seeking to breathe life into these images that they had created, uh, you know, the Israelite understanding of that would have been that there were real spiritual forces at work and those spiritual forces would come and occupy that particular object that was created and then the people would be subservient to that idol and would worship it in order to try to manipulate the spirit that was occupying that particular idol and that is so contrary to the plan of God in the Imago Dei because the uh, the, the the scriptures make evident that the order of creation is to be God who has created his image in man and that man uh, image-bearing creation is to rule over those spiritual authorities even. Um, And, you know, you got text saying that on the last day, it'll be man that judges angels. And so you see how everything gets distorted when we overturn the order of creation as God has designed it to be, where uh, man is the image of God. We worship him. We image him in the world. We do the, uh, the works that he has called us to do in the world, and we rule over the world, including uh, ruling over spiritual forces. Um, but instead, man chooses to become subservient to those spiritual forces and to worship the created things and the images and the things that, that uh, of course, the, the uh, spirits want to get them worshiping. So anyways, that's an offshoot thought, but yes. just, you know, there's so much, there's so much filled in Romans one. This is that's right. Romans one is Paul, the rabbi 
explaining just what he's doing here in Acts 17. So I recommend everybody read that with this image point in mind. Yeah. And it's very eye-opening. Yes. And uh, and just just the point that I would want to highlight most most clearly is some of the two aspects that you were highlighting. Hokuma, um identifies those as structural and functional aspects of man. And he goes on, he says, must we think of the image of God in man as involving only what man is and not what he does or only what he does and not what he is, or, or is it both what he is and what he does? And he says, it's my conviction that we need to maintain both aspects. So this is saying when we're talking about the image of God, we're talking about both what he is in his ontology, his being, and in what he does functionally. What, what does he do? Both of those things are what we ought to think of when we think of man imaging God. He says, it's my conviction that we need to maintain both aspects. Since the image of God includes the whole person, it must include both man's structure and man's functioning. One cannot function without a certain structure. An eagle, for example, propels itself through the air by flying. This is one of its functions. The eagle would be unable to fly, however, unless it had wings, one of its structures. Similarly, human beings were created to function in certain ways, to worship God, to love their neighbor, to rule over nature, and so on. But they cannot function in these ways unless they've been endowed by God with the structural capacities that enabled them to do so. So structure and function are both involved when we think of man as the image of God. And so what we would want to just make clear is that the uh, structural function of the image of God is still in place, but the functional element of the image of God has been so tainted, distorted, um, even reformed philosophers have gone so far, or uh, theologians have gone so far as to say, as destroyed, yeah. that uh, man is unable to do what we were made to do. Right. the The structure's still there, the status, but that's right. But the ability to do it has been marred by right. sin. We we are unable to respond and to be what God has made mm-hmm. us to be properly. And so that's where you have to see the centrality of Jesus. Right. We are not right now in our current state true humans. Right. We are distorted humans. We are we are fallen humans. Jesus came into the world and was the true man. He lived truly as man and showed the world what man ought to be structurally and functionally in obedience to God, carrying yes. out the creation mandate, the, yes. the the demands of the law, all those things he did perfectly. So Jesus then is, in his humanity, the perfect man. He came and did everything that Adam failed to do. There even yes. is this idea in Christian theology that Adam uh, was given a particular mandate and that yes. it was his task to essentially prove himself as he went through testing that he would prove that he is going to remain true to what God has created him to be as the image. He will not allow himself to be marred. And yet Satan or the serpent comes into the garden, these evil spiritual forces that are supposed to be subservient to man. Man was supposed to, Adam was supposed to say, Satan, get out of here, right? Right. Like you are, I I have authority over you because God has given me authority over you. But instead, Adam and Eve submit to the authority of this evil spirit uh, in the serpent, and they rebel against God's law. They fail in doing what God had ordained for them to do, and thus all mankind falls into sin and is now unable to function 
like, and it's a crippling disability. Yes. It's not something that we can overcome on our own. So Jesus comes in and notice part of Jesus's um, work is his active obedience, meaning Satan comes and tempts him just like Satan came and tempted Adam. But, but Jesus withstood the test in the way that Adam did not. And so all of us don't withstand the test. When we're tempted, we fall into sin um, because we're prone towards that sin because of our sin nature. But Jesus comes and has, again, the perfect nature that Adam had at the start, but Jesus walks perfectly as a man all the way through and thus is the only true human that has been on the earth since Adam. But he is a more perfect human than Adam ever was because he withstood that temptation and that testing. And that's what qualifies him to be our substitute. And so the way this works in all of the history of redemption is everything that Jesus did, he did as our corporate representative. He is the true man, if you will, uh, the God man, of course, but the true man nonetheless. And he does everything required perfectly to show what humanity is supposed to be. He triumphs over the evil forces of darkness. He doesn't give into temptation. He's perfectly obedient to all of the demands of the law. And he dies on the cross to substitute all of his perfection and righteousness to the fallen humans who would trust in him. And he takes all of their sin on upon himself and suffers the punishment for our sin and then dies for it, but doesn't stay dead after making the payment for sin that was required by God. He is resurrected from the dead and ascends into heaven as perfect man, even as a redeemed man in the sense that God redeemed him from death. And so now how are we restored in our image bearing? Well, it's not through what we do because we're crippled. We are restored by being incorporated into all that the true man did. We're incorporated into Christ where all of his work becomes substituted in our place. It, It becomes ours. And then the work of redemption from that point on is as we are in Christ, abiding in him, resting in him, worshiping him, focusing on him, as we're in him, he begins to restore our humanity to be what it truly is meant to be. And it is guaranteed that that humanity will be fully and completely restored on the last day when we are raised up with him after death, resurrected with him, uh, you know, and and reign with him yes. in the way that we were meant to reign. Right. Absolutely. That was a spiel. That was great. The only thing that maybe I can see if I can transition a little bit here. That fall, that rebellion, Genesis 3, right? That submission came in the form, um, just to give two huge examples, Genesis 3 is its own. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. Yep. Every detail matters in that text. It's, well, it's the Bible. So it was a turn within. I'm going to put myself at the center. And that came in the form of first questioning whether God really spoke, twisting what God really spoke, adding to God what God really spoke, and then eventually denying it, turning within to what looked good to her based on her self-appointed standard. I will be God. Yeah, it it was... um... Instead of being a mirror, yeah. I'm going to shatter the mirror and seek to be autonomous. Exactly. I don't want to reflect God. I want to be God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the sin. That's right. I hope LDS just heard that. Yeah. <laughs> and just show just how far it can go. 
Once you do that, here's an LDS apostle, just to distinguish, right? We're about making distinctions clear. We tried to faithfully represent creedal Christianity. Here is the equivalent for LDSism. This is one of their apostles. In fact, uh, it's weird that he's not remembered more because he's so key to them. He was um, he and Talmadge are really key, but he wrote a rational theology. And this is one of the chapters that I wanted to read some of, and we could stop and comment, but just to show how radically different. If you take their interpretation of that one verse, okay, and make that the filter, this is where you end up. The conception of a universe directed by a God of intelligence cannot include a God of mystery. For in mystery, there is only confusion, right? In our general conception of God, his origin, destiny, and relation to us, we understand him well. But in the details of his organization, powers, and knowledge, he transcends our understanding. See the same, the continuum. They're on the continuum, just further progressed. Intelligent man dwelling in a universe containing many superior intelligent beings will often find need of the help that higher intelligence only can give. See, what's the help? Teaching you the knowledge to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. The better men know the Lord, the better may the eternal truths we learn be applied in our daily lives. Um, since we don't have time, I just recommend this chapter 12 in this book uh, as a distinction. The, the headings are the order of gods, and then it goes um, the plurality of gods, right? And talks about progression. Um, if intelligent beings far transcending the understanding of man be called gods, see that? If intelligent beings far transcending the understanding of man be called gods, there may be many gods. Okay, and so he argues for plurality of gods, and then he goes, God the Father, right? The greatest personage concerned in our progression is the supreme God. He is the father of our spirits. He is the being of highest intelligence with whom we deal. To our senses and understanding, he is a perfection. See? To, yeah. to, our, to our senses, senses and, and understanding, understanding right? Yeah. He's still progressing, I think, would so would say. Um, he's had our experiences, our equivalents, understands, therefore, the difficulties of our journey. We know we know no greater God than the omniscient, omnipotent Father. Of course, retranslated or reinterpreted, omniscient, omnipotent, they don't mean the same thing. God the Son. I'm going to skip to God the Holy Ghost because this section is really interesting. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost constitute the Godhead or Trinity of Gods. Trinity of Gods. Guiding the destinies of men on earth. God the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit who possesses special functions which have not yet been clearly revealed. He sees the issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, and then it says other beings, right? That there are many other intelligent beings superior to us, no doubt take part in helping man to do his work on earth, angels and spirits. And then this, the last section is called sex among the gods. His words, not mine. Yeah. And uh, once again, this is a big key to understanding the gods of the ancient world, the false gods and the true God is through this lens. Um, John Oswald's The Bible Among the Myths. I can't recommend this book enough, but he focuses quite a bit as this being a huge distinctive. Yeah. Uh, the ancient Israelite, that is the biblical view of sexuality. Um, let me read this. Sex, which is indispensable on this earth for the perpetuation of the human race, is an eternal quality 
which has its equivalent everywhere. It is indestructible. The relationship between men and women is eternal and must continue eternally. In accordance with gospel philosophy, there are males and females in heaven. Since we have a father who is our God, we must also have a mother who possesses the attributes of godhood. This simply carries onward the logic of things earthly and conforms with the doctrine that whatever is on this earth is simply a representation of spiritual conditions of deeper meaning than we can here fathom. So, that, those, I should say, not that, no singular, that is the gods of Mormonism. That is what the leaders of Mormonism, through the curriculum, are claiming Paul is teaching. Mm -hmm. By simply landing on that phrase, not even translating according to its pagan context, and certainly distorting, and not just distorting, rejecting what Paul means by that, this, the sacred apostle. And I, so I, <laughs> there's more to say, and we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but I, I cannot help but think of 2 Samuel 7 on this temple's point, where David thinks, oh man, we have such a great God, correct? We have such a great God. I look at my house. Look at the temples these other gods have. Let's build him a great big house. And what does what does uh, God through the prophet say? Right, first the prophet's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and then says uh, the Lord, let me see if I can find it really quick. Um, but anyway, he scolds him. He ends up scolding him, right? Um, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And um, let me just summarize because I know we're out of time. But if you read that chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters because he, he says, David, David, you've this is an error. Yeah. I don't need this. Yep. You may need it. And of course, this is there will be a temple to help Israel better understand who this God is, mm-hmm. with a lot of distinctions with the other temples of the ancient Near East. But I love this passage because he, he, it shows this God who, it's not like he's sitting there waiting, just like, oh, I just can't wait for people to worship me and sing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. I don't need that. Yep. You need that. I don't. And I love how he tells him, you know, basically, I don't need you, David, mm-hmm. but you do need me. And I will build you a house. Right, and the, the the pun there, right? I don't have time for, but especially given we know where the story's going, that there will be in this house of David a seed who will come, who will come, who we all need, and his resurrection declares to every LDS out there, flee from idolatry. It doesn't matter what you call them, and I don't care if you call them Jesus. It doesn't make you make it real Jesus flee from idolatry and come to the true God who does not need you, but you need him. And by the resurrection, you know one day you will be judged by this God. You will be judged. And But here's the good news. He provides the righteousness he requires as a gift. Yep. If you will only but believe in him, him being the one true God as revealed in Jesus. That's right. Run to him. That's a good... 
place to end. So we'll cut it there and see you all next week when we'll be looking at Acts 22 to 28. We'll see you then. Thank you.